Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend. I'm Jason Godby, here with another edition of Indie Film News. Now, this is a preview of the upcoming Katra Film Series and Brooklyn Film Festival coverage that we're going to be bringing you coming up on May 29th. But first, we have a couple of sponsors to acknowledge. This episode is sponsored by our friends at JMR Rentals professional digital cinema and broadcast rentals here in Brooklyn. To find out more about them, visit their website, jmrny.com. And by Soundhouse Audio for full-service audio production for film, television, and theater. Visit their website, sound-house.com. That's sound-haus.com. All right, now on to the news. First up, we got the Katra film series. Uh, After a three-month break due to the COVID-19 crisis, they are planning a return for two live streaming nights in partnership with Footprint.tv. Joffrey Guerrero, the founder and executive director of the festival, had this to say about the festival's return. Due to the lockdown in New York City, we've had to get creative and find new ways to support independent filmmakers from around the world. We are really proud to be working with Footprint to recreate the festival experience with virtual filmmaker Q&As and live streaming of the selections. We look forward to serving filmmakers during these uncertain times until we are able to return to a movie theater in the near future. Each night, the audience will vote on the best work, and the winners will take home up to $5,000 in prizes. This uh, film festival is supported by Final Draft, 3636 Studios, Screenblade, Meditative Writing, and International Screens Writers Association. They are also uh, supported by JMR Rentals and Anorama Rentals for the 2020 season, which is great. Katra Film Series will be streaming on May 29th and 30th, starting at 7 p.m., on Footprint Network, they are available via the Footprint app or on the website footprint.tv. Now, the live stream will be free to the public, but there's also a pay-what-you-can option if you want to support the film festival. And now moving on to the Brooklyn Film Festival. As we mentioned uh, on an earlier Indie Film News, the Brooklyn Film Festival's 23rd edition Turning Point will present their more than 140 films online for free on their website from May 29th through June 7th. As an additional prize for the 2020 filmmakers, a selection of winning BFF films will air on WNET's Real 13 as a summer showcase. This will be a four-hour block dedicated to BFF and the projects that BFF handles. As previously announced, all the films will play for free on their website for the whole duration of the festival, but viewers must first open a free online account and you can pre-register now. Viewers will be able to look through the list of films and play the ones they want to see. We recently had the opportunity to preview some of the films ourselves, and now uh, here with his reviews of the Brooklyn Film Festival films is No Rest of the Weekend contributor and the founder of the blog I Actually Paid to See This, William Hammond. All right, welcome, Bill. How you doing? It's great to have you, man. We, you've been on the show before, but this is the first time we've actually done a show together. I know. This is pretty exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm only sorry that I couldn't get my Jay and Silent Bob reboot poster into the shot. <laughs> Lo- uh, loved, your review, loved your review of that. It's, it was one of my favorite movies last year. Oh, thanks, man. Um, you know, uh, Kevin Smith's a true indie, and a lot of the films that we're going to be talking about are real indie films. Um, in fact, these are films that you chose from Brooklyn Film Festival. Uh, and a lot of them are actually foreign films. 
So uh, go into a little bit of that and kind of talk about why you chose them. Uh, and we'll just go through the films one by one and, and give people a better idea and maybe recommend a few that people can try out uh, when the film festival starts running on the 29th. All Absolutely. Right. So let's get into it. The first film is called, and uh, just a general note to, I'm going to butcher a lot of the pronunciations of some of these names because uh, uh, they're foreign, but uh, bear with us. Okay. So the first film is called Snayland. Uh, uh, sn yeah, Snayland, I think it's called. Yeah. Uh, directed yeah. by Lise Raven. Um, it comes to us from, uh, it's set in Iceland and Berlin. Um, so you had an interesting review of this, uh, which is on our website, by the way. Um, but uh, so give us a little background on the film and kind of give us some of your thoughts on it. The film is kind of presented as a neo-noir, which that's initially what drew me to it. Like out of the entire list of films, I was like, ooh, a noir, let me go into that. I love, I love mystery. I love these kind of character dramas. And the idea of the isolation of Iceland itself, just so remote compared to the rest of not only Europe, but the rest of the world it was intriguing because you could definitely create these angles of like, you know, you have nowhere to go, but what the film ended up really being about and, and why I was just enthralled by it was that it was the skin of a noir, but it was really a, a tale of personal redemption. You have this journalist played by Frank Bruckner uh, named Fred. He's going to this, you know, small village in Iceland. It's the, the midnight sun, you know, 24 hours in the summer. And he's basically working for a tabloid, though he describes it as a major German newspaper. He's on assignment to basically photograph some kind of, you know, Ari Aster, Midsummer-esque uh, orgy, for lack of a better term, which doesn't actually exist. But in his passing, he sees a woman uh, played by Emily Bear, who he's certain from moment one is this infamous French au pair who got into this scandalous affair and may have committed a murder. She was supposedly dead after the public backlash against her once she got out of prison. So he's like, okay, I'm going to completely redeem my career now, get back into serious journalism by exposing this person. That's where the beauty of the film comes in because there's no true mystery. It's more of how do you define redemption? Is it rebounding from a past mistake or is it making a choice to better someone else at your own expense. Vikinger Christensen plays a cabbie named Oscar. He's uh, Emily Bear's husband in this, in this film. She, she goes by the name of Melanie, uh, an assumed identity. He's just this unassuming, blue-collar, awesome little working guy who just wants to do right by as many people as possible, even though he's chosen different paths uh, for his life than what his family would approve of, what the very insular fishing community would approve of. But all he cares about is doing right by the people he loves. He's trying to learn French because his wife is French. It's one of the most endearing scenes of the film. It's just watching him run up and down the stands at a small soccer field, just reciting French dialogue in his earphones, just so he can try to get that much closer to, to this woman who he found basically by accident. It sounds to me like the film, you said it presents itself as kind of a noir, and, but there's not really a mystery. He, we know that this person is uh, under the assumed identity. We, that's not a, a mystery in the film. Yeah, it's, it's, never, it's, it's never questioned. There, there, there's, there, there's some doubt from uh, Fred's publishers of like, oh, come on, she's dead. I'm like, no, there's, 
once the information is out there, it's pretty much well confirmed. It, it's, it's like the third man in that respect. It's like w once Harry Lyme shows up, it's Harry Lyme. There's no questioning of who it is. Right. So yeah. the, the mystery is the, qu the central question of the film is not, is this woman, this uh, person who's faked her own death? Mm -hmm. The mystery is, is he going to, uh, is he going to write the article? Is he going to expose yeah. her kind of thing? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where the tension and the drama come in. Yeah, it's not, it's not even a question of whether or not she did what she went, went to prison for because it's irrelevant. She's already served her time. She's paid her debt, whatever it may have been. The question is, does she deserve a life of her own now? Um, is the scoop worth the damage she could potentially do to her life and to Oscar's life and to the whole community by exposing this? Uh, one of the great visual metaphors of the entire film is that when Oscar drives people all over the place, they have to enter and leave the town through a tunnel in a mountain. So every time they move around, they're engulfed in darkness, and then they come out to a very bright light. And only Oscar doesn't have to shield, shield his eyes. So th the idea of going through the dark to come back into the light, it's a striking metaphor uh, at least Raven puts into this. It's, it, it, it does so much thematic heavy lifting throughout the, the entire film. For those who uh, might be, you know, wondering what to watch uh, with Brooklyn Film Festival coming up, what they want to stream, would you recommend this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, every film has its flaws. I mean, there, you know, I, I don't want to harp on them too much. I mean, there, there are a couple of technical elements in this one that, that makes it look a little less polished than everything. And you might notice some pretty glaring continuity errors. But again, the, the strength of the story, the strength of the performances, the, the, the strength of the themes and, and storytelling ability, that's what really matters here. It's just too rich of a story and, and, and too well done from a thematic standpoint to really worry about, you know, hey, that truck disappeared in the next shot. <laughs> Very cool. So let's move on to our, our next film. Uh, this is um, another um, feature, uh, dramatic feature, uh, Rotten Ears, which is a curious title. Uh, <laughs> this is directed, and forgive my pronunciation, by uh, Piotr Delewski? Delewski? Probably a good guess, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, it's a, a tale of a premature marital crisis caused by unfulfilled expectations and the lack of communication. So uh, this is essentially uh, a love story, a marriage story kind of thing? I mean, the, the, the way I put it in, in the review, which you can read, and it's just me trying to be clever, but in a weird way, it, it kind of works. It's like the weirdest version of couples retreat you'd ever, ever see. <laughs> if you ever wanted to hurt yourself painfully by watching Couples Retreat. Um, <laughs> apologies to Vince Vaughn. Um, but that, this, this film drew me right in because uh, Polish cinema for the last few years has had a lot of really good human character stories, especially when it comes to things like couples. Cold War, which got uh, nominated for the Oscar a couple years ago. Uh, Corpus Christi just last year. Ida, which, which actually won the Oscar for foreign language film which was literally about a woman going into a, a convent, but she wanted to experience physical intimacy for the first time. Like Poland is kind of at the fore of the very small subset of relationship drama. So seeing that it, that it was Polish and the, the title Rotten Ears, it's, I think it's a Shakespearean reference uh, to, just to the pernicious and insidious nature of dishonesty and lies. I was like, okay, I'm in, what you got? You know, <laughs> I, I want to see whatever this has to offer. This is kind of a, a fun little bit of a mind trip because it's 
the opposite of Snailand in the sense that this is much more produced, much more polished. Like you can see a lot of the, uh, you know, lens flares and lighting effects that you would see in a typical Hollywood film. So, you know, this, this had at least some kind of really good financial or professional studio backing in Poland. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this got submitted to be Poland's uh, potential nominee for, 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 for uh, now they call it international feature next year. Because it's got, it's got that sheen to it. What about it was kind of the grabber for you that you liked about it? Because uh, in reading the review, um, it, it sounds like a, it's, it's very into these relationships. It sounds like it's all about the writing and the acting. Um, but you, you, but it's also a good-looking film as well. But what yeah. was it for you that kind of grabbed you? Just kind of this feeling where it's like, where's the shoe gonna drop? Because you have you have this couple, uh, Yannick and Marcena. Uh, again, I'll apologize apologies for the at best educated guess on the pronunciations. Uh, Magdalena Selmer, she plays Marcena. She co-wrote the film, um, and uh, Mikolaj Krobocek, he plays Yannick. They're a couple on the rocks even though they've only been together for like four years, they've only been married for about two. And you're immediately set up with these kind of weird expectations about where the film can go. Like the, the, the first time you even see them, they're not really arguing. They're, they're not what an American Western audience would think of as a, you know, a, a couple in trouble. Like this isn't War of, the, War of the Roses. They're calm, they're polite. There's just a little bit of underlying, not quite hostility, just a little bit of underlying resentment. And when you first see them, like you see Marzana, she's she's fit, she's attractive, um, but she seems to be wearing these kind of blase, you know, casual clothes that maybe she doesn't care about what's going on. Whereas Yannick, he's he's built like me, a uh, little bit bigger, a little bit bushier of a beard, but he's dressed like a tourist. He's he's wearing a very loud shirt, khaki shorts. He's got an Ernest and Julio Gallo hat, for God's sake. I was like, this guy is a tourist and wants everybody to know it. But when you actually meet the characters and see how they interact, it's, it's more that he's putting on a facade. He's putting on a show to, to make it look like he's committed to this, whereas she is more looking casual because she's prepared for to do anything and everything to get this, this process right. And um, the therapist, uh, his name is uh, Henrik, uh, he's played by uh, Michael Manich, he's got this very unconventional way of going about things. He makes them sign contracts, surrender their cell phones, blah, blah, blah. Like, you almost wonder if there's some kind of, like, weird, insidious, you know, torture porn scene coming, <laughs> like, something out of an Eli Roth movie. But it's just more that it's like, oh, we're going to play this game where you hop around in place and dance with each other. And in that respect, you see that Marsana's clothing, this, this loose-fitting casual clothing, she's a She's exactly prepared for what she needs to do, whereas Yannick is just completely awkward and stilted, doesn't want to be there. He, he just, he kind of wants the validation of being there without actually doing the work. And then once Henrik brings in another couple, uh, these actors that he works with to basically project the problems that the couple has back to them, it almost creates this beautiful Rashomon-esque scene where you can basically have one interaction that five people in interpret five different ways, where there's ne not necessarily a right or wrong answer. I just wanted to keep exploring it and, and, and see what the truth really was. You know, did Yannick ever cheat on, on Marsana? Is she expecting too much of him? Like, everybody has their flaws, which the, which the film is willing to show 
without any hint of uh, of a veneer to it. The question then becomes, what did we do about it, and what really happened? And th this this is where I won't necessarily call it a flaw, but if this film were to get picked up and potentially get distribution internationally, you have to go back and do some reshoots because the film's only 58 minutes long. I was, for once, I wanted so much more exposition. I wanted flashback scenes. I wanted to I wanted to see exactly what was going on rather than being told in a couple of lines of a couple of lines of dialogue here and there. It's like this is a film that begs for another half hour, 45 minutes to truly get into these characters' heads. Because the resolutions and the twists and turns that, that come before it, they're so well done, they just need a little bit more build to a little bit more heft to them. And I would honestly just love to see what they would do with with a, a heavier budget, more time to shoot, you know. Because it's, it's basically a bottle film. Like, it's five people who are only inside a house or in the backyard. It's not like it'd be a hard set to, to reconstruct. So... This film, and it's a it's a common flaw that we've seen in indie films before, where you like you need a little bit more meat on the sandwich, mm. and and probably that's because due to budget, time constraints, you know. Um, but you know, from what you're saying, it sounds like the core of the film is still there and it's still worth watching. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, leave the audience wanting more, I guess, because I want more. <laughs> I want I want to just fully get inside and out of all of these characters and truly just oh it was aching like like no don't end now like you say meat on the sandwich like i want like a dagwood style sandwich on this thing i, I want so much more meat on this sandwich yeah <laughs> so, i mean that's you know and then it's kind of like a, a situation where you feel like there's more there to be had but yeah probably you're right if something like that gets picked up for wide distribution will say hey can you make more of this make more because you know was it 58 minutes you said 58 minutes yeah that, uh, you know that's barely a feature that's like you know uh, a feature is usually minimum like 80 minutes so if, if you if you could do more and, and put more in there and give it another 20 or 30 minutes even yeah, it wouldn't drag for a second if you did honestly like i said another half hour 45 minutes it would not feel bloated at all uh, left you wanting more that's not a bad that's not a bad thing it's like a good problem to have for, for exactly all right, we're going to move on to the next film, which is a documentary uh, called The Right Girls by uh, somebody's name I can actually pronounce, uh, Timothy Wolfer. Uh, and this concerns three young transgender women uh, who are traveling from, uh, they're from El Salvador of Honduras um, and making their way through uh, Southern Mexico. So uh, not a comedy, not probably not a barrel of laughs, uh, I would imagine. Um, if it is, I would question your life choices. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are three main women. There's a fourth one who comes along in the last act, uh, named Sine. She's from, she's from Nicaragua. You have, uh, Joanna and Chantal from, uh, Honduras, and you have Valentina from El Salvador. Now, El Salvador and Honduras have two of the five highest murder rates in the world, and LGBTQ people are targeted disproportionately to the rest of the population. We see that problem even in this country. They make up a third of a percent of the population, but a hefty number of the casualties of hate crime violence in, in, in the U.S. So during the 2018 migrant caravan, or any number of epithets that uh, politicians would levy at it, you had this 
small group of people, the, the four that are featured in the film, but there's, there's, about, there's about two dozen or so that, are, that pop in and out. And they basically, through need, come together and basically watch out for each other. And we get this kind of unique look at the odyssey of going, in essence, 3,000 miles to the border. A lot of the, the first part of the film, they're basically just walking. It's all, it's all they can do. They're, they're on the roads. No one's giving them rides. Those, those that do prioritize women and children, and because they're transgender, they don't consider them women. So there's, there's a lot of discrimination that they have to deal with, not, not to mention all the trauma that they've already suffered in their lives. It sounds like this is like a hard film to make, too. Like, did you, did, was it, did you feel like there was a big, this was a big camera crew and a big production, or is this kind of like one guy with a camera making this movie? I would, I would imagine two cameras and a producer at most, honestly. Um, and that may explain one of the more curious decisions in the last third of the film to focus on just one of the group as, as they all split off. Honestly, my first thought watching this was, how did this person get access to them? I mean, we're literally talking about a case where these thousands of people start to move. We start to get news coverage of it. The president tweets about it. And within weeks, this this guy, Timothy Wolfer, and his crew are in southern Mexico seeking these people out and ready to share their story with the world. I would have loved to just know the exact process that he went through to get from, you know, that kernel of an idea to actually executing it. I mean, once you're there, yeah, you're just basically following them along. It's, you know, it's any other travel film, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But it's like, how did you get down there to even start the project? It's like, and... Yeah, I would got, love to see like a making of on this film. Yeah, you know, because on top of every, on top of everything else, no one has a command of the English language, so you have to have translators. Yeah, it, it, like a skeleton crew that at times is piling onto tractor trailers and trains and buses that are already severely overpacked with these people, and now you're bringing a film crew and still trying to get everything you need in the frame and get the the proper points across as to the struggle that these women are going through do you feel like despite the difficulty that they had that they were still able to convey that and still able to kind of get the story across and, and were the i mean they're not characters per se but did you find their stories compelling uh, i i did and, and and the reason i the reason they're compelling is because they're decidedly human stories and that's something that needs to get across to a lot of people, not just in this country, but in the rest of the world. People are people. Human beings are human beings. They're not animals. They're not invaders. They're not something less because their sexual identity is different from yours. All, all the horror stories and stereotypes need to get dispelled. So this crew that we have... Um, Chantal, Joanna, Valentina, and to a, less, and to a lesser extent, Sine, because she comes in late. We see multifaceted personalities here. Um, Joanna, she, she deals with multiple stigmas because of her, her status, her sexuality, her race. Chantal, she's dealt with traumas for her entire adult life, and she's taking hormone replacement therapy. So there are side effects to that. And then on the flip side, Valentina is a complete drama queen. Like, like, she is someone in this country that you would see on a Bravo TV show. You, she, you would see her on so many reality shows in this country. Hand to God. She, there's even, there's even possible debate 
as the film goes on, is like, is she just playing this up for the cameras? Is she seeing this as her moment in the limelight? Which, it's an odd accusation to fling because you're not trying to depict that. But the job of a documentarian is to basically let the camera roll and let truth be true. So while it's somewhat disappointing that a lot of she, she steals a lot of focus, it is undeniably human that people like this exist. That you know, you don't have to write this character. She's a real person. This is her. For better or worse, this is her. Well, it's like that uh, we talk about it in, in documentary film, like it's like that observer effect. Mm-hmm. You know, just by observing the story, just by being there, you change things and you create a different story than what would have happened uh, had you not been there. Um, and that's that's an interesting thing to play with. It's an interesting question to ask while, while you watch the movie. Uh, for this one, how did you, like, uh, overall, did you feel like, um, you know, with, with the previous film, we said it was a little, we wanted a little bit more of it. Did you feel like this was a complete film and, and would you recommend it? It's definitely a complete film. Um, apart from a couple of things in the, in the third act, but again, I think that's necessity with the small size of the crew. Um, some of the girls get, some of, some of the women get separated and I think eventually just choices had to be made. Who do we follow at this point? We, we can only follow one, m- make the choice and then deal with the others in a postscript. Again, this, this is where, yes, uh, a, behind the, a behind the scenes documentary would be such a wonderful supplement to this because I, w- I would love to have just see what the decision process was for like, who do we go with, you know? Who, who do we follow to the end? If we have someone like Valentina who is playing up, you know, for the cameras, the observer effect taking over, it's a little disheartening that the camera obliges her in that respect, if that is what actually happened. But at the same time, again, this is real human drama laid bare before the world. Okay, so now we have our next film, which is a short, uh, a unique little short uh, called Mr. Sam, uh, directed by Zeus. Kanatianis. Um, my my Greek is not great, but uh, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. <laughs> Sorry, we apologize to the filmmaker Zeus. It's a unique film, uh, unique premise. Uh, t- tell us a bit about it. Yeah, unique is probably the <laughs> the most diplomatic way to describe it. It, it. It's decidedly weird, but kind of weird in the best way possible. So the film is basically about the title character, Mr. Sam. He's played by uh, Christopher Piccioni. Uh, you might have seen him in some TV shows like Blue Bloods, SVU. He's done a lot of uh, uh, bit, war- bit parts around uh, the last few years. And he, he writes and directs his own short films. As a character, and I'll try to paint as good of a picture as I can here, picture Norman Bates, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, and Bernie from the Jack Black film in 2011, if you ever got a chance to see that. But he looks like Pee Wee Herman, <laughs> which can only add to the creep factor if you're predisposed to that. All right, so the other guys that you just described, they're all like sociopaths, they're all psychopaths. Is, well, this, it, char- is this character in the same characterization? or? Well, it, but that, that's, that's the subversion because he's absolutely not. Before we get into that, what, tell us about the character. Like, What does he do and kind of set up the premise for the film a little bit? It's never explicitly stated, but it looks like he's a funeral director or a mortician of some kind. That, that's where the Jack Black Bernie comparison comes in. Uh, if you never got a chance to see that film from 2011, it's on YouTube. Watch it. It's Jack Black's best performance his entire career, where he plays an effete, nice, southern uh, mortician who also murders Shirley MacLaine. 
it's based on a, on a true story, an actual person in East Texas. Um, so that, that, that's where the Bernie comparison comes in. That, that appears to be his job. He, 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 he might be a mortician uh, and he tutors uh, a local young girl and he's got all these weird kind of affectations about him. Again, just little weird things that make him quirky or, or eccentric. The film opens with him putting on some classical music and dressing a corpse. So that sophistication is where Patrick Bateman comes in. The famous scene of him putting on the radio before he does the most horrible thing you can imagine. And then the Norman Bates thing is the fact that the very unhealthy obsession with his mother. But whereas all those other films, especially uh, Psycho and Bernie, kind of left the sexual issue in the background and open to your interpretation, this film kind of lays it all out there. In the synopsis itself, I'll read the synopsis for us, yeah. uh, just so we're not giving any away, because this is on the website. Yeah. So synopsis, uh, Sam is finally ready to tell his mother he's gay, but is he ready to reveal that the love of his life is a corpse? Okay. Okay. If it's if it's out there, then I can say it. Yeah. So they're they're putting it right on Front Street. <laughs> it's like he 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 is somewhere between standard issue homosexual and necrophile. Yeah. And the only thing that's really left up to your interpretation is whether or not he's truly attracted to the deceased, or if the person on his slab, this this young man. Uh, is just someone that he finds so attractive and fantasizes about him being alive again so they could be together. It's a little bit of ambiguity that goes a long way towards humanizing the character. And what happens with this is that it challenges you to think about whether or not the worst things about us truly define us. Because yeah, if this guy is a necrophiliac and he even admits it himself in the film, he's sick. He, he, has been with a been through a lot of psychiatrists and drugs. He is trying to deal with this, but he also is honest with himself to the extent like, yes, this is who I am. And the rest of the film is about showing what a good person he is in spite of it. Tutoring the young girl, standing up to an to a battered for a battered woman, bringing gifts to people, doing everything he can to give off as as much of a counterbalancing persona as it, as it can. And it seems like his perversion, for lack of a better term, is an open secret in this whatever area they live in. Uh, one of the confrontations, they even call him Dead Man Sam. Like, it's like, you don't call him that unless you know why you're calling him that. So it's an extremely effective performance that Piccioni gives. And it is, in a way, heartbreaking because you want to be disgusted by it but you also want to be pitying on it that's, a, that's an interesting angle and and hopefully it's not in a way where it reduces the character you know where you, um, don't, you don't feel like you're you're sort of looking down at this guy you're, you're you not looking you're not looking down on him but you're also not excusing him either Th that that that's the, the subtlety and complexity of what this film puts across to the point where, um, and I just, I, I looked this up and, and deservedly so, um, there was a film festival in Chicago last year where uh, Christopher Piccioni won Best Actor for this, for this film. I actually happen to know that the filmmaker, I believe he's working with, the, I want to say the Sundance Institute to try and develop this into a, a bigger project. 
for for you as it stands right now as a short, uh, A, do you recommend it as a short? And B, do you want to see it made into a bigger film? I'll answer, I'll, I'll put, put on my quiz show quote. I'll answer the last part first. Uh, <laughs> I'd be curious to see it as, as a feature length. I don't know if it could get distribution and really um, resonate with a mainstream audience if it did. But at the same time, a couple of years ago, uh, the live action short Oscar winner Skin was already in the process of being adopted and adapted into a feature length film when it played uh, as a nominee as a short and, it, and eventually won as a short. So it can be done. And I would honestly say that, that this film should be in consideration in, in, for, for, for major short film awards because it really is well made and gives you a unique complex character that you honestly yeah, there are, you can you can tell the where the inspirations come from, but this is a character you have never seen before. I think it would be interesting. I, you know, the premise is certainly interesting, and I, I don't think they're going for a mainstream audience with this type of film. It, it, it would be impossible, <laughs> but, um, but, but, the, the, but there the is an who, audience. I mean, we just had that film yeah. Swallow uh, come yeah. out and do pretty well, so, you know, which is weird. But, like, uh, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there is, it's a smaller market, but there's definitely a market for this type of film. Yeah, th those who would seek it out would not find it gratuitous or in bad taste. So I think it can definitely reach the people it needs to reach if you made it a feature. All right, man. So we're going to wrap up. But thanks so much for, for joining us for the first time. Uh, hopefully, uh, we're planning on bringing people more coverage uh, throughout the week from, from the 29th to the 7th. There's a few, you know, there's all these major film festivals that are running. I uh, hope to have uh, Bill back on the show. Uh, but Bill, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Thank, thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. To find out more and register, visit the Brooklyn Film Festival website, brooklynfilmfestival.org. And for more on William Hammond, visit his site at actuallypaid.wordpress.com. William's done reviews uh, for us. Those reviews that he talked about tonight are also available on our website. And that's all we got time for today. Thanks so much for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. I'd like to thank our sponsors, JMR Rentals and Soundhouse Audio. I'd also like to thank my good friend Bill Hammond for joining me. And for more festival coverage, don't forget to subscribe to this space. You can also visit our website, norestoftheweekendpodcast.com. And for Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. 